Hey guys, if we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to see you here. We've got a very controversial topic uh, today as we continue this sermon series on sex. And one of the, one of the things before I, before, uh, I pray, um, I just want to say why we're actually talking about sex. Uh, I, I, think, I think that's important because one of the things I, I've been hearing is just, just going, oh, like, do we need to talk about sex? Do, like, you know, I was at a church, we never talked about sex, or, you know, in my culture, we never did. And here's why. We, we are living in a world that is sex-saturated. And we, we are seeing people um, be very confused about what God says about sex. Sex is an important part of being human, right? And so when God speaks about something, we want to hear what he says, even if sometimes it's uncomfortable, right? And I dare say this, there's been uh, parts of the sermons that, that, have, that uh, we preached so far that have you know, been a bit awkward and been a bit uncomfortable, right? But, but we do that, we talk about the awkward, we talk about the uncomfortable things because generally no one else does. And what we usually do as humans is we, we hide their awkward, uncomfortable things away and they can fester and rot and destroy lives and marriages. So we're going to talk about these things because God's word brings healing and wholeness to the things that we need, right? And so, so if it's awkward for you, let me tell you, it's probably helping a marriage. If it's awkward for you, it's probably helping someone who's got an addiction, if it's awkward for you, God is doing work in this room. And so I just wanted to say that because I think it's important that we talk about something that God's Word talks about but something our culture talks about a lot. We're talking about homosexuality today. And before I pray, we usually give away a book or two that is going to help us think about living as a Christian. I'm giving away two books today. The first is this book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. She was a lesbian English professor who became a Christian. This is her story and it's amazing. And it shows you what a normal, average, run-of-the-mill Christian can do in somebody's life as they love people over time. So, so that's the first book. I'll put it, put it down there. And the other book is uh, by Preston Sprinkle and it's called uh, People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue. And this is the best book that you can buy and read or get given to on the topic. So please, if you want to have a look at those books, uh, you can. If, if uh, uh, you want to you know, read one of those books but someone's already got them, uh, please let me know because I would love to, um, uh, we'll buy them for you, right? So there's a few people in the last week that said, I really wanted that marriage book by Tim Keller and we're giving that away next week again, so don't worry. Um, can you get me a copy? And we got some, I think, three copies for different people. So we'd love for you guys to, to have great uh, Christian books. I'm going to pray as we uh, jump into this really important topic. Let's pray. Father God, I pray as we look at your word today that you would speak to us wherever we're at. Some of us uh, know and love uh, gay people. Maybe it's a brother or a sister Maybe it's a son or a daughter or a niece or a nephew. And this topic brings, brings nerves 
because we're wondering what God is going to say, what I am going to say. So, Lord, I pray that you will calm our nerves and help us to listen to your word today. Lord, some of us, um, we're attracted to the same sex. Or maybe we consider ourselves gay or lesbian or bi here. And we've come to church and we're just going, oh, this is just going to condemn me. Well, I pray if people are in that category, they would hear the love that you have for them today. Not just what God may say about their sexuality. Lord, for those of us who have got um, hatred or loathing towards the gay community, I pray that you would help us to repent of our self-righteousness and our homophobia that may be sending us currently to hell. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in all of our hearts. Through your spirit, through your word, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I can remember uh, a time uh, Kate and I were married for about six months and someone we loved was sitting in our, in our little apartment and he said through tears that he was gay. And we, we felt a bunch of different emotions because that person who came out that he was gay was Kate's brother and my brother-in-law. And, you know, there was all these feelings. There was love, obviously, for him, and there still is. There was was fear. There was, what what does this do about our relationship? What are we going to do? And, And over the last number of years, probably 12 years since that has happened... We've had to work out what does, it, what does it mean for us to be Christians with someone we deeply love and profoundly respect. Daniel is now married to a guy and uh, they have got a daughter, Amaya. And so Dan and Daniel, that, that's, that he's married someone, same name. Um, well, we, we love them. We love them. And there's nothing we would do, we wouldn't do for them. And so I bring that up to say this. One of the things that we're not going to do today and one of the things that we're we're never going to do in our church is actually talk in a way that kind of implies that we don't love gay people or slanders them in any way. The first person I ever told that if you keep behaving this way, I'm going to kick you out of the church, those were my exact words, was a, was a guy who was writing raps, rap music. And rap, I've not, not, got nothing wrong with rap, except it's not really good music generally. But I said to him, he was writing lyrics that were totally disgusting about gay people. And I said, you cannot be a Christian and say these things. And unless you repent, next week will be your last week at church. And he did repent. And uh, now he's actually a pastor, right? Uh, I say that once again because I want to make sure that we're not going to treat gay people or speak about gay people in a way which Jesus wouldn't, right? 
I remember being being on a panel at a at a Christian conference. It was it was it was a Christian, it wasn't a great Christian conference, but I was there, and and they were trying to be inclusive of all different theological point, points of view. I was the token, you know, evangelical. There was liberals and all this kind of stuff. And one person on the panel who uh, who was trying to argue for the full acceptance of homosexuals uh, and homosexuality in the church was saying the. Uh, homosexuality is the bigger, uh, and gay people, is the biggest problem the church has got and we need to solve it. And can I just say, I don't think this is a problem to be solved. Gay people are a people to be loved. And so we need, as a church, to love gay people. That's where we start. That's where we start this conversation. But also we've got to actually be very clear about what, is, what are the stakes in this conversation. Because I think in, in, in conversing with different pastors and reading different things and hearing what people say about, about uh, this whole topic, people talk about it, it's about love. Why can't you have two people that love each other? And, and I say that's important, but it's actually bigger than that. Well, you know, some people say, well, well, it's about people feeling loved in a community. I want to say that's really important, but it's actually bigger than that. This is about eternity. This is about heaven and hell. And whoever gets this one wrong is sending people to hell. So, for example, right, if the Bible is affirming for uh, homosexual sexual unions... If someone was to say the Bible doesn't affirm it and therefore it turns people off Christianity, those people who are saying the Bible says uh, the Bible is against it, they're sending people to hell because people go, I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity, I'm going to reject Jesus because of this issue. But conversely, if the Bible is actually against homosexual sexual unions... And people say, actually, the Bible's for it. They are sending people to hell. Because what is happening is God has put a line in the sand. And they are encouraging people to sin against God openly and not repent. See, homosexuality, if it is a sin, we're going to look at that, is not the biggest sin in the world. Rejecting Jesus is. And you can do that by living in a lifestyle which the Bible says is wrong. So today we're going to look at this this important topic. And once again, if you are gay here or lesbian or bi or trans, we want to say to you that you are welcome here. You're going to hear, you may hear things today that, are, that is going to really, you know, challenge you. Can I just say, I hope that happens every sermon for every person. Because, because when we come up to a God who is so greater than us and, and acts in, in such a better way than us and he speaks to us, what's always going to happen is we're going to look at our lives and we're going to see the gulf between who he wants us to be and where we're at now. And so if you feel that today, if you feel like, well, I feel like God, God is saying I should live this way and I need to change, guess what? That happens hopefully every week in every sermon for all of us. Because God's word is a two-edged sword. 
And the metaphor implies that actually sometimes when it actually comes in our lives, it, it cuts, it hurts. Because we are sinful and we need to change. And so as, as, as we talk about this, this topic, I want you to hear, if you're gay or lesbian or trans, that this is not the first conversation I want to have with you guys. The first conversation I want to have with you guys is all about Jesus. Because at the centre of our faith is not sexuality, it's, it's Jesus. It's not what you do with your body, it's Jesus. But we're here now and we need to talk about him. And so we're going to see three things as we look at, look at uh, uh, this topic. First of all, we're going to see four great lies. Four great lies uh, 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 that people say about this topic. Secondly, we're going to see a great hope. Excuse me. And thirdly, we're going to see a great vision. Four great lies, a great hope. And a great vision. There are, I think, up the back still some, uh, you know, some handouts if you want them. Uh, but let's jump into these four great lies. Here are four great lies. There are two lies that I would say conservative people make, and two lies progressive people make. Right about this topic. The first lie is this: that living active gay lifestyle is the worst sin. The, the way some churches talk about this, it seems like, you, you, you know, uh, this is the worst thing ever, right? Just after September 11, I know this is uh, over 20 years ago, Jerry Falwell said this two days after September 11. He said this about the attacks. I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that alternative lifestyle uh, people for the American way, all of them who have tried to secularize America, I point the finger in their face and say, you helped this to happen. Did you hear what he's saying? He is saying September 11 happened because of, of feminism and abortion and gays and lesbian people. Look, like God is looking at America and seeing the, the greed and corruption and going, oh, that's not great, but actually this is. You know, he's, like Jerry Falwell was a very, very, very rich man. Extremely rich. I'm sure, he, I'm sure he had greed in his life, like we all do, because we're all part of the West, right? And yet, and yet God didn't look down and judge America for being greedy, or for having violence as a form of entertainment, or any of the sins that we could talk about. But these, are you kidding me? See, what you've got to realise is, when we have a look at 1 Corinthians 6, and please look at it with me, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, there's a bunch of different things. In verse 9, he talks about the sexually immoral, but have a look at verse 10. Nor the thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So, so what Paul is saying, there's a bunch of things that are symptoms of the fact that you're rejecting God. And there's things like greedy. I, that should terrify everybody in this room. Because everyone here has been, has drunk from the well of Western secularism, which I think is built on this idea. You need more stuff and more money. That is greed. Or, or, or think about this. Slanderers. 
I mean, that's an Aussie pastime, isn't it? To rip off people we don't like. Well, even if we look at different parts of the Bible, in Revelation 21 verse 8, liars won't inherit the kingdom of God. You ever told a lie? Some of uh, you know, lies, a lot of the time, are reflexive. We don't think about lying, we just do. Oh, did you get that? Oh, yeah, I did, when we really totally forgot about it, right? In Revelation 21, verse 8, cowardice is a sin that will, that will make people not inherit the kingdom of God. So, so when I know I should speak up and I don't, Jesus is saying that that sin is something that is so antithetical to the way you're meant to live that he finds it very repugnant. Or you take Romans 1. Romans 1. Gossiping. Talking behind people's back. Envy. You ever looked at somebody and went, man, I wish my body was like that, or I wish I had their car, wife, husband, house, whatever. Envy. Or, Romans 1 again, disobeying parents. Like, I mean, I never did that. But like, but, but, but can you see there's all these different things which are symptoms of the very fact that we are rebelling against God. And, and so the lie is that living an active gay, gay lifestyle is the, wor- the worst sin. God doesn't look at different sins and go, well, this is worse than the other. No, all of them are symptoms of the fact that we have rejected God. Turning your back on Jesus is actually the worst sin. And we all do that. We've all done that at one point. But, but here's the second lie that, that comes up from conservative people, that all gay people choose to be gay. It, it's almost like someone woke up and went, oh, you know, yeah, I think I might, be, be, I might try this out. Right? Now, now, what I want to say is that it does seem like there is this push for people to try different forms of sexuality today, especially with young people. But genuinely gay people, I don't think, choose to be gay. I remember reading a book a number of years ago about Shelley Wright. She is a lesbian and she grew up in the South and she's a country music singer. And she, as I think she was seven, she realised she was attracted to women. And yet she, she knew that that was she, she was taught that that was wrong. And so what she did is she went to the same place on her, her parents' property, rain, hail or shine, and prayed there three times a day because she thought that God would answer her prayers. She did the math. She thought, well, if I pray three times a day for one year, that's 1,095 prayers. If I do it for three years, that's 3,285 prayers. God is going to turn me uh, around and he's, he's going to take this feeling from me. Can you imagine what it is to be an eight-year-old not wanting this and with tears in the middle of the rain praying this because you don't want this? Uh, and I can remember one, one of the things that, that I've been, uh, I was told as I met many gay men in, in Newtown, any time I would meet a gay man and I would tell them that I was a pastor, automatically they looked worried and scared. And so what I would say is I would love to shout you lunch and all I want to do is hear your story. I'm not going to tell, tell you what I think about anything unless you ask me. 
I just want to hear your story. And, and there was a number of, of men that, that said, oh, okay, fair enough. They told, told me their story. And so many of them said, if I could choose to be straight, I would. But I didn't choose this. And think about your life. Do you think you really chose your predispositions to sin? Some of us have got the problem of arrogance. Oh, no, no, we're not arrogant. We're just always right. Um, but did you choose one way, one day to wake up and be like that? Some of you guys, uh, as Romans 1 says, gossip. Do you choose to be a gossip? Oh, no, just it happens naturally. Do you choose to be envious? No, it just kind of is a reflex emotion a lot of the time. See, we do not choose the way we sin. We just do. And so it makes sense that, that there would be people who have a disordered love. The, the third lie, and this is one of the lies of the more progressive writers of the Bible. And here's the lie, that writers of the Bible didn't know about homosexuality like we know it now. That, that writers of the Bible didn't know about homosexuality like we know it now. Uh, this has been studied, homosexuality has been studied a lot over the last 50 years, especially since Kinsey, right? And so we know far more about it, but the Roman world didn't, or, or, or you know, the people of the New Testament times didn't. Can I just say, they may not know and have the categories that we know now, but they knew a lot about it. If you read uh, Plato's Symposium, you will see men, or you will read about men in homosexual relationships. If you look at the archaeology and the art of Pompeii, which was destroyed just after the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, you see there's a lot of, there's tons and tons and tons of sexualized art, and there's a lot of it where women are you know, having sex with women and men are having sex with men. Sure, we may, they may not know it and have studied it like we have, but they knew about it. They knew about it. And so Paul was speaking to a bunch of uh, people at Corinth who knew what, knew what it was. And Paul knew about it also. Line number four is this, that the writers of the Bible were talking about harmful gay sex, not all gay sex. The argument is that when the Bible talks about it, they're either talking about cultic prostitution or they're talking about pedophilia. And can I just, uh, you know, they're not talking about two men or two women in a committed, you know, marriage or something like that. Can I just say, it's just wrong and and we're going to have to get a little bit bit technical. Have a look at 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. In, In our translations it says this, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. Now, there's actually two words in the original for men who have sex with men. I'm sorry to get kind of graphic here, but, it, but, but the, the two Greek words. One talks about an effeminate type man, literally, mal, uh, the word is malakoi. And one, the other one, is a word that Paul has made up himself, right? It literally, he's taken the two Greek words, bed and man, and put them together. And those are the two words. So one is kind of soft, effeminate thing, and there's this compound word that Paul has used. 
And, and so what scholars have, have read this and looked at it and basically have said, what he's talking about here is the, the active and passive partners in a male homosexual sexual union. The, the act is the problem here. Not the predisposition, right? And that's really important. And so in Romans 1, you, you see the same thing. That people, it's the act that's the problem. Even if you go back into the Old Testament, into Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, it's the same. It's the act that's the problem. Or the act that's the sin. Why is that important? Well, it's, it, it's important because it draws a line in the sand to say, actually, it, 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 you, the Bible can't condone any form of sexuality that is same-sex. And yet, the Bible says that, yes, a person who's attracted to the same sex or even bisexual has got a disordered love. But just as I may have a predisposition to arrogance, right, and to not listening or whatever it is, whatever, whatever the sin I have or you have, and if, if I've got that predisposition, but if I don't act on it, that is not sin. I've got that predisposition, but I'm not acting on it, so therefore it's not sin. If a person has got a predisposition to be, to be attracted to the same sex, that may be a disordered love, but it's not sin. It may be something that they'd be struggling with, but it's not sin. So, see, we, we need to be very, very careful the way we speak. And we need to think about it. And we need to think about this biblically. Why? Because our world has changed its mind on this issue in the last 20 or 30 years without really thinking without really thinking at all. I was on a panel years ago with a, a few politicians. And I won't name who the politicians are uh, because you'd know at least one of them. And I was the conservative pastor that was, uh, you know, um, felt like I was uh, sent into the uh, arena with lions, right? So, and we were talking about uh, marriage. This is before the plebiscite and everything. And, and it was re- really interesting... Because we had one guy who, um, in the early 2000s, said that marriage is between a man and a woman, right? And then he changed very quickly to say, if you don't agree with same-sex marriage, you're a bigot. And I, and I asked him on the panel, I said, uh, that's a big change to make, Right? Can you tell me about the conversations that you've had, the books that you've read, the thought that you put into this? to make that change. And he said, oh, that's just a typical trap from conservatives that you ask a question like that. You know, you just don't like gay people. I said, actually, no, I think we all would want to know that, right? And I said, I I think the problem here is um, that it seems like you have just made this change without really thinking about it. Abraham Lincoln talked about the worst, worst politicians are career politicians because they're wind sniffers. They sniff the wind, it's going east, they will head, head east. And the idea that Abraham Lincoln was saying there is that these pe- people will say whatever they want to get, to get elected. And what was interesting 
the guy was squirming in his seat and everyone laughed because he obviously hadn't really thought about it on a deep level. He hadn't thought about it on, on, on pretty much any level. He just changed overnight. And my thing is, I think in the church, a lot of people who affirm uh, homosexual unions have done the same thing. We have not really thought about this. And as I said at the start, this is about eternity. This is really important. This is really important. And it makes me angry when pastors who have not done the work in this just go along with what the culture says because they're sending people to hell. And as a church, we may cop flack for this position, but this is actually a loving position. It's loving to say to someone, if you keep rebelling against God in this way, you're walking away from Jesus and there's no hope. Even though that's hard. But there is a great hope. Have a look at verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6 with me. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Did you see? You were this, but now you're not. You were defined by your sexuality, but now you're not. You were defined by being a liar or a drunkard or whatever it is, but now you're not. This is the power of the gospel. This is the hope of the gospel. And notice what has happened to to them. But you were washed. That is, that when Jesus died for you, all your filth and grime that, that is in you because of your sin has been taken away. You are now washed clean. In the book of Revelation chapter 7, people are wearing white robes that, tore, that kind of imply that they've been washed by Jesus. They are pure and right and clean. You were sanctified. The, the, the idea behind sanctification is that Jesus is changing you morally to be more like him all the time. That's what Jesus is doing. And justified uh, is this legal term, that you're legally right with God. You may have legally blown it with God on every, any, every level, but Jesus has justified you if, if you're in a courtroom. It's almost like the judge is saying, no, you are absolutely right. I've got nothing against you. That's what Jesus has done. That's what Jesus has done for you. But but I want to say, if if you know someone who is gay or lesbian or or, or trans, or or it doesn't even matter if they're like this, this is what we want. This is what can happen. Maybe you're here and you are uh, not following Jesus. You don't call yourself a Christian. Well, this is what can happen to you, that that you can go from being rebels against Jesus to friends. You can go from being someone who is actively rebelling against Jesus to being washed, to being sanctified, to being justified. And if you're gay, this can be your reality too. In fact, there's a number of people. I talked about Rosaria, Champagne, Butterfield. Please read that book. But let me give you another one. Last year, I read a, a book by a guy named Beckett Cook. 
And he's a guy in LA who was um, a set designer. He talked about having a happy gay lifestyle, a lot of money, a lot of friends, a lot of everything. And he was invited to church. And what happened was he became a Christian in one service. And here's what he says, and the quote is on the outline. He says this, The overwhelming wonder of God's infinite love is this. While I was broken and a failure, God came to rescue me. He came to love me, to redeem me, and to heal me from sin. Where I failed, Christ succeeded on my behalf. Where I I distrusted, Christ was faithful. Where I proudly resisted, he humbly surrendered. Through his obedience, he bridged the chasm between my darkness and his light. On the cross, God's son took my place and became a sacrifice for all my failures. In his resurrection, he triumphed over all my destruction. And he now stands as my victorious redeemer, offering me and all who will simply receive him his forgiveness and vindication. Christ clothed my shame and brokenness with his righteousness and holy life. That is, that is the hope of the gospel, isn't it? And that is the hope of the gospel for everybody, no matter where we're at sexually. And so if you don't know Jesus today, that is the hope that is before you today. And that leads me to my last point. We have a great vision, and I think 1 Corinthians 6 gives us this vision. Because don't we want to see a number of people who are able to testify, um, I was this, but, but I've been justified, sanctified, washed clean. I, I was a drunkard, but I've been justified and sanctified and washed clean. Now, I, I was full of envy and slander, but I've been justified and sanctified and washed clean. I, I, I was... I was sexually immoral in very different ways, but I've been justified and sanctified and washed clean. Don't we want to see a flood of people who that's their story? Don't we want to see that at our church? Well, well, I hope you do. I hope you're saying that that's exactly what I want for this church because guess what? That's what God wants for this church. He doesn't want just a nice group of people who come around and, and, and you know everything's cool here. He wants to see many people come to know Jesus here, to have that story. And what does that mean for you? It means hospitality. Hospitality. We're so busy in our lives, we haven't got margins in our room, in our lives to actually invite people over who may not know Jesus yet. And yet, I think that's one of the main ways. If you read that book by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, the thing that brought her to Jesus was not a sermon or a bunch of sermons. It was hospitality. It was, uh, you know, a non-Christian, uh, sorry, a Christian uh, uh, husband and wife inviting her over and chatting and inviting her friends over and chatting. And over time, over time, over a number of years, she became a Christian. Here's what she says. Our post-Christian neighbours need to hear and see and taste and feel authentic Christianity. Hospitality spreading from every Christian home that includes neighbours in prayer, food, 
friendship, childcare, dog walking, and all the daily matters upon which friendships are built. Wouldn't it be great if all of us today went out, out from today's service and we thought, I haven't talked to this person in a while. In fact, I'm going to invite him over for dinner. And in fact, I'm going to invite him over for dinner again and again and again and again. I'm going to talk about Jesus whether, you know, when the conversation arises. Because people won't just come to church if you invite them. People will come to church if they see the difference that it's made in your life. And therefore, you have to open up your life to other people. I think one of the reasons why the church has done such a terrible job with the gay community is because we've said, oh, okay, the gay community is over here and we're over there. I wonder what what would have happened if in the 80s and 90s we decided to go, okay, I'm going to open my home up to my gay friends, to my lesbian friends. Uh, We're not even going to talk about sexuality. We're just going to talk about everything and they're going to see how much I love them, how much I care for them. I'm going to offer to walk their dog or or do the mundane things that shows that I care about them and love them. Who's Who's one person who doesn't know Jesus that you can text right now, right now, and say, hey, we haven't caught up in ages. Can we catch up? Who's the one person that you can do that? Because if, we, if 1 Corinthians 6.11 is going to be our vision, that's the kind of thing that we've got to do. That's the kind of thing that we have to put time into. And over time, what people are going to see is that, the, that Jesus has made a difference to our lives, that Jesus has washed us, justified us, and sanctified us. And the love that he has shown us, we show to other people. And that's when they want to come, going to want to come and hear about the Jesus that we serve. We as a church need to be very clear about what the Bible says about human sexuality, but we need to be clearer on the very fact that we love all people. And Jesus loves all people and died for all people. We need to hold those two tensions even as the world says we can't, because the Bible says we can and we must and we should. Let's pray. Father God, what what a topic to speak about, to think about. What a topic, especially such a controversial one. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage and the love to, to talk about what the Bible talks about to hold the positions that the Bible holds because they're your ideas, not ours. But Lord, I pray that our, the gay and lesbian and transgender people that we love will know most of all that we love them, will know most of all that Jesus loves them. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to hold those two things that our world says we can't hold what the Bible says about human sexuality and the immeasurable love that God has for all people. Lord, we want to see a flood of all people and especially gay people come to know and love and serve you. Lord, help us to show that great love that you have first shown us in Jesus to all people. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.